Hi folks, Patrick here. Welcome back for another episode of Bibliology. This is of course the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today you'll get to hear my conversation with Dr. Paul Copan, Professor of Philosophy and Ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University and author of the recently released Is God a Vindictive Bully? Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and New Testaments, published with Baker Academic. This was a really enjoyable and beneficial conversation. Uh, Paul, of course, wrote the acclaimed volume, Is God a Moral Monster? back in 2012. And so this book we're discussing today is a, is a follow-up where he expands his position. Um, and that, of course, that position is that instances of divinely sanctioned violence in the Old Testament are justifiable. And that there is no discontinuity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They are one and the same. And yeah, this book is worth reading just as he wrestles with challenging passages and ideas that I'm sure many of us have also wrestled with. So I'd heartily recommend that you um, get a copy. And of course, you can check out the link in the description to do so. Now, just before we get on to the podcast, we're approaching the end of 2022. So I wanted to thank followers and listeners of Bibliology over the past year for your continued support and enthusiasm about the show. We've had a great year. We're currently approaching 2,000 downloads, which is just amazing. We've been listened to in countries as far away from Ireland as Australia, Peru, Madagascar, South Africa. It's just amazing to be able to reach people all over the world. And I'm thankful for each and every one of you listeners. So God bless and I'll see you in the new year. Now, on to the podcast with Professor Paul Copan. Well, hello there, Paul. Great to have you on the show. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Patrick. Great to be on, on with you. So, of course, today on the show, we'll get to be speaking about your upcoming book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Reconciling Betrayals of God in the Old and New Testament with Baker Academic. The listeners can find that in the description whenever they're listening to this. I'm excited to get into that conversation, but I think it would be good for the audience to get to know you a little bit personally before that. You up for some quick fire questions? Sure, go for it. Sure. So according to your Wikipedia, um, and I'm not sure if you're one of those people who just, you know, goes on their Wikipedia just to make sure everything's in order every now and again. Uh, well, it's, I, it, it was... Someone volunteered to do a Wikipedia page for me, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And so uh, recently I thought, well, probably needs to be updated. So uh, someone else, I, I asked someone else to update. I, apparently I can't do it myself. So we just gave them the information and uh, all the links that are necessary to verify and so forth. But uh, but yeah, so that there's, there is that Wikipedia page. Of course. And um, you are, it says that you are currently located in Palm Beach. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know, as a, as a non-American, is this part of the world as, as tropical as it sounds? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm in West Palm Beach. Uh, Palm Beach has its own, uh, what should we say, uh, associations with status and wealth and so forth. And uh, I couldn't afford to live on Palm Beach Island. Uh, so we are west of Palm Beach Island on the mainland in uh in in uh, and so that's where where i live but uh but it is subtropical also not precisely tropical but it is warm we don't have any uh changing seasons except to go from uh you know go to maybe a, a a wetter season and sometimes we'll have some trees shed leaves but basically it's uh it's it's uh warm or 
you know, or you say hot and humid or pleasant uh, throughout the year. So that that's great. And what's the warmest it's ever been in your memory? Uh, well, I mean, I guess in um, uh, in it never hits well in in Fahrenheit uh, triple digits. So I don't know, they'd be like thirty five degrees for you guys. Uh, oh, <laughs> but uh, but but it, it's 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 um, it'll get say ninety. 293 94 maybe 95 is the hottest but it will have the humidity factor so uh so in other parts of the country it'll be much hotter during the summer than it is in in south florida we do have an ocean breeze to help uh temper things a bit which uh which we appreciate sure sure of course and in west palm beach you are a professor and um one of the one of the fields that you work in is philosophy and right. this, is, this is exciting for me because that was one of the subjects i did at university. So I'm curious to get your opinion on um, what it, what is a sub-discipline in this field that you will uh, never dare approach and never why? Never dare approach. Well, I mean, of course, there are sometimes people talk about areas of expertise and areas of specialization or, you know, or, you know, or areas of interest. And, um, you know, but one area that doesn't really appeal to me would say be I don't know philosophy of mathematics. Uh, not all that uh, that interested in that. Um, so yeah, I'd probably stay off of that. I wouldn't teach a course in philosophy of mathematics. So, mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, whole range of other stuff in philosophy, uh, fun to poke it, poke around in and explore uh, and dig you know, more deeply into. But uh, uh, but philosophy of mathematics, not so much. Yeah, and of course, your your good friend William Lane Craig is the expert for that, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he's done done work in that area. I mean, I've had to do a little, had to do work in that area to some degree, but in terms of immersing myself in, uh, you know, not not as drawn to it. Sure, I'll say just for myself, when I attended university, they had, um, I think, a, a module in phenomenology, and um, it, you know, it was never even clear to me when I was in the classes what it was about. Um, like what what this was actually what the person was actually talking about so sure. um that would probably be for me but um okay i don't know if you've done anything in that field yourself or yeah i i've done i've done i've done some and it may not be as daunting as uh, as you may think and i mean it you know can be can become complex of course but uh but at least you know the uh i think mathematics uh, is something that would be far more daunting to me than uh, than phenomenology. But uh, but take a look, maybe poke around a little bit in it yourself, and uh, you may see, oh, this is kind of interesting and uh, doable. So sure, there you sure. Of course, you are also um, into your theology. And one question that is kind of a, well, it's not really a classic on the show. That would be far too pretentious to say that. But um, <laughs> a question that's quite common is to ask, you know, the participant that if they could ask a human Bible character not named Jesus or Paul one question, what would it be? And so um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your your response to that. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, of course, opens up the imagination for all sorts of possibilities. Uh, kind of an, an interesting one that I would uh, perhaps uh, put toward the top would be uh, Barnabas, uh, his initial interaction with uh, with Paul, Saul uh, of Tarsus, uh, and also what was, you know, how did that dispute that you had with Paul 
end up, of course, when uh, when John Mark didn't uh, continue on on the missionary journey, um, how did they uh, reconcile things? And, you know, toward the end of Paul's ministry, he does mention um, uh, John Mark uh, in Second Timothy toward the end of his life, and uh, so things were patched up with him and uh, you know between the two of them. But just was wondering what uh, where things went with with Paul and, and Barnabas. Um, you know, in terms of how things were resolved, um, what the, um, yeah, how long the resolution took and so forth. So those types of things. Yeah. What were they, um, what was the disagreement about? Does it specify in the, yeah, the book of Acts, they, um, uh, John Mark left the missionary trip. And uh, so on the second missionary journey, um, Barnabas, you know, with whom Paul went on the first one, on the second one, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark again. Paul said no because he had bailed the first time around and so didn't want to run that risk again. And so because the dispute became so uh, so intense, they just went their own separate ways. Paul went by himself or with his own, uh, you know, and, you know, he worked with people, of course, in ministry, um, but he had his own, you know, he, he worked uh, independent of Barnabas. Barnabas embarked on his own ministry uh, with John Mark, but uh, but without without Paul. Sure. I, I was expecting to be at the top of your list, you know, asking Joshua. So um, so how do you make sense of that violence, Joshua? But I suppose, you know, you, you have all the answers to that anyway. So Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's because I've just been doing so much work in that area. I'd prefer a little bit of a break talking to somebody like Barnabas. Uh, but yeah, that would certainly be an interesting uh, conversation as well. Yeah. Now, we'll get on to speaking about your book. Um, and of course, just to repeat the title, it's Is God a Vindictive Bully? Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and New Testament. I was thinking about, you know, the the similarities and differences between this book and your previous book, Is God a Moral Monster, mm-hmm. which is, of course, um, a, quite a successful book. And I think this book contains a lot more interaction with people you refer to as critics from within. Obviously, that means um, critics of Old Testament violence, violence who nevertheless identify as as Christian. Uh, so, so for those in the audience who might not be very familiar with this debate about, you know, divine violence in the Old Testament and whether the New Testament diff- differs, you know, who are the most prominent uh, critics from within? Yeah, well, uh, those would be like theologian uh, Greg Boyd, um, Eric Seibert, an Old Testament scholar, uh, Peter Enns, another Old Testament scholar, um, uh, Randall Rouser, uh, who is a theologian and does work in apologetics as well. Uh, so, uh, so those would be, uh, you know, resistant. Of course, they identify as Christians. I certainly would consider themselves uh, brothers in Christ. Um, although we see things differently when it comes to how to interpret the uh, those texts uh, dealing with violence, uh, and you know, of course, the Old Testament does not ascribe violence to god violence is something that refers to is you know it refers to people who engage in say criminal activity who engage in murder and uh, evil doing and so forth that term is ascribed to them uh god is not uh, you know that term is not ascribed to god i mean there's one uh, you know one mention of it in association uh, but it doesn't describe god as being hamas violence violent so there is a uh, so if we can talk about it we can maybe talk about 
you know, in quote, you know, in scare quotes, you know, do, you know, there is a counter violence that God engages in, uh, in response to human uh, wickedness, violence, and so forth. But, uh, but so those who who say that God uh, is, you know, we attribute say drive the command to drive out the Canaanites to the Lord or God smites Uzzah uh, in uh, in in second uh, second Samuel when he touches the ark uh, and he's struck down and David is uh, upset by this well the critics from within would say well that's not that's not God doing that. There could be some other force, like a demonic force. Greg Boyd uh, says that that when God withdraws His influence and protection, that uh, other forces, human or uh, or demonic, might step in to fill the vacuum. Uh, and so, when God says, "Drive out the Canaanites," Greg Boyd and, and others, uh, Eric Seibert. We'll say that that couldn't be the actual God. That's only the textual God. The actual God, well, that's the God who loves his enemies. That's the God who, uh, you know, who is, you know, who, with whom Jesus identifies when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, so love your enemies, turn the other cheek, Father, forgive them. Uh, that's reflecting the character of God. And of course, uh, they point to, and I, I would point to this too, uh, John 14, 9, Jesus says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. And uh, and so if we want to know the true character of God, we need to look at that loving, kind enemy, uh, you know, showing compassion toward one's enemies kind of God. That's the very character of God that we want to focus on. Uh, rather than the severe, harsh God often portrayed in the Old Testament. That's the textual God, the, the God of the fallen, ancient Near Eastern, uh, violence-prone prophet or narrator. So that's where we, uh, th those are our critics from within. I'm curious, um, which of these critics from within, you know, has caused you to reevaluate your more conservative position the most and and why, would you say? No. Well, I mean, you, you use the term reevaluate, and uh, I, I guess the more I read them, uh, and the more I search the scriptures and read the the scholarship, the more convinced I am that <clears throat> I think I'm onto something, <laughs> and sure. that I, 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 not that I have mapped onto this perfectly, and that I have reached the, uh, the, the, the perfect ideal uh, tension uh, where the scriptures are. Uh, I am striving to understand the Old Testament scriptures as the New Testament authors understand it and interpret it. Um, I'm trying to balance all of these things and read widely, read canonically, and so as I have done that, I mean, I've, I've interacted with, you know, I think people like, you know, Greg Boyd and Eric Seibert, I mean, the people who, with whom I'm interacting, uh, you know, Randall Rouser, I mean, they certainly are making uh, strong, uh, strong cases uh, that coincide with basic moral intuitions uh, about, you know, violence and, and, and harm and so forth. Um, you know, and so, you know, but but it's interesting when even when they talk about these intuitions, uh, you'll have people like Greg Boyd saying, like they take Abraham in the command of God to sacrifice uh, Isaac in, in Genesis 22. And I guess we'll be coming to that back to that. But um, according to Greg Boyd, he says, well, I don't think that this is, you know, he, he doesn't see this as being 
morally problematic in the sense that, yes, God, there's a context for this, that God could command this, and you have to understand it in a broader context, Abraham's own context, etc. Um, and so he doesn't see this as being the textual God, but the actual God doing this. On the other hand, you have someone like Randall Rouser who finds this problematic. I mean, he does uh, temper it a little bit, but he he says that this command to sacrifice one's son is is intuitively, you know, goes against our moral intuitions. Um, and so we need to revisit this and, and think it through in a different way that God uh, couldn't have done that. And, and so there are people from you know, who take that view that God could have done that. Then there's someone in the middle who, you know, um, uh, Kenton Sparks, who says mm -hmm. that he's not sure if this is something that God commanded or not. So, so we're, you know, we're appealing to certain intuitions, but on, on the one hand, you do have a certain moral context, other moral facts that need to be brought into the picture uh, as we assess this. It's not just your ordinary uh, divine command here that is generically understood by all human beings not to, not to murder your children. Uh, there's something unique and significant. Abraham uh, is, has been interacting with God for a long time. Uh, there's a context here. So, so that's also part of the configuration. And, and as we look at some of these uh, texts, I mean, I, I, I feel the, you know, certainly the weight uh, and the point that uh, these, these critics are making would uh, be a lot tidier to just take their viewpoint and say, oh, there must be some other way to interpret that. But as I look at other ways to interpret the scriptures, I say, well, no, I, the, the weight of special revelation uh, mm -hmm. is, uh, is inescapable to me here. And I, uh, I want to grapple with this rather than dismiss it. And I, again, I'm not saying that they're doing this casually, dismissing it casually. So I don't want to in any way uh, diminish their wrestling with these texts. I, I appreciate the fact that they are. Um, sure. But I, I can't uh, find myself settling where they are because I find that, you know, certain things will be will have to be surrendered. And so I'd, I, I would rather grapple with this and, and wrestle with these tough questions and okay maybe they're not uh as morally satisfying to my critics uh who are the critics from within uh but i, I think that that's the more consistent uh path to take when it comes to interpreting the scriptures yeah. and, and i think that we you know and one one author daniel hawk who's done a herculean work on old testament violence or you know, if you however you want to put it um, and he says that we simply cannot, uh, there's there's no tidy answer for this. And so he he himself takes on people like Greg Boyd and Eric Seibert and so on, and finds that the, the, cons the constructs that they utilize to deal with or perhaps uh, remove uh, any sort of harshness or severity uh, from uh, from God's command and so forth, he says these just are these don't work, uh, that they are actually undermining scriptural authority, and that these constructs are tenuous and problematic, and that we are safer mm. uh, going with a more robust understanding of how the scriptures portray these rather than the more 
kind of hypothetical constructs or the constructs that they put uh, put forward. Uh, so he, like saying that Moses really got a lot of things wrong, uh, Greg Boyd, that Moses was actually what looks like it's God approved in the Old Testament, turns out to be demonic when you look at it from a, a crucicentric viewpoint. So, mm -hmm. so uh, Daniel Hawk says, that just doesn't work. Uh, Moses is applauded in both testaments. You know, he is close to God. He spoke with God face to face. And you're going to say that that's demonic? That's that's going too far. So those are some of the things that I've tried to wrestle with. And uh, try, you know, I think I've, like I said, I think I've landed in a place where where I'm, I'm just holding these things in tension and may not look as appealing to some people, uh, may not appeal to, uh, you know, their moral intuitions as robustly as you know I would like, they would like. Um, so, you know, we have, might have to part ways and just continue to discuss the text and deal with some of those tensions and, and work things through. Sure. I, I think like another thing that's um, interesting to compare these like um, critics from within is they would have kind of diverse views on the authority of scripture as well, wouldn't right. they? True. So, yeah. For example, Eric Seibert would say that these Old Testament texts that refer to, you know, say Canaanite warfare and so on, those are not inspired scriptures. Uh, there's so he, so uh, Eric Seibert holds to a general inspiration, but not a, complete or uh, plenary inspiration. Uh, by contrast, uh, people like uh, Randall Rouser and uh, Greg Boyd, I mean, well, Greg Boyd would actually say, I reject the inerrancy of scripture. I mean, some people don't like to use that term. Mm -hmm. John Stott uh, used the term, I mean, not that he's opposed to that term, but he didn't like to use it and use he didn't want to speak of the truthfulness of scripture in you know, you know using a term that has you know two double, double negatives in it. So inerrancy. Uh he wanted to speak about the scriptures being truthful in what they affirm. And so Greg Boyd uh, rejects the rejects that because when it says this is what the Lord says, and of course the narrator believes that this is what the Lord is saying, the the prophet believes this is what the Lord is saying, but Greg Boyd says no, that's not necessarily what the Lord is saying uh, because it conflicts with the cruciform vision of Jesus in the uh, you know as he says from the cross, Father forgive them. He's not you know, this is an, an act of enemy love. This is actually uh, wiping out your enemies, etc. So. So that would be uh, that would be the the, the position that uh, he would take. Um, Randall Rouser has a more I think robust understanding of the scriptures uh, as being fully inspired, and so he but he would be and, and Greg Boyd sees them as inspired but not uh, not accurate, and so he and Randall Rouser would probably be in the same uh, general vicinity uh, when mm -hmm. it comes to dealing with some of these harsh texts, so the textual God and the actual God. Um, yeah, but yeah. so anyway, that's a little bit of a breakdown there. Yeah, thanks for that. And maybe we can look a little bit at the, um, the specific solutions that some of these sure. um, uh, critics from within have. And um, one of these, um, so these critics are not afraid to think theologically, and one way that they frequently explain difficult portraits of God in the Old Testament is by way of appealing to uh, the doctrine of divine accommodation. Um, so maybe you could elaborate, like, what is this doctrine? And like, do you think it has a place in how we interpret um, challenging Old Testament passages? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's an important question. And I, I do spend time talking about it in the, 
uh, Vindictive Bully book. Um, and of course, there are levels of accommodation. And I think that the accommodation that people like Greg Boyd engage in is a kind of over accommodation uh, where, like you said, when what is approved in the Old Testament, even we're told that God approves this, God commands this, and so forth, when you have an utter reversal of that by saying, oh, that's just the textual God, not the actual God, what it looks like God is saying in the Old Testament is actually demonic and rejected by the New Testament's cruciform vision, you know, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for the cross. So, so yeah, I can, we can talk about accommodation at the level of you know, images of God's hands or God's eyes moving to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, and we can say, well, obviously God being a spirit, uh, you know, these are, this is just using, you know, anthropomorphic language to speak about uh, God's uh, knowledge or God's power and so forth. But not that this is literally uh, what we uh, what we understand here, uh, or that the you know. And so you can use that sort of language. You know, poetry is full of this kind of language of accommodation, um, and and we get that even in our own usage of poetry when we even uh, refer to to God and so on. Um, so so I, I would say that there there is even a place of accommodation when God works with the Israelites in an ancient Near Eastern setting permits certain things, as Jesus said in Matthew 19, 8, that Moses permitted certain laws because of the hardness of human hearts, not because they were ideal, but God was accommodating himself to the Israelites. And, and I think that what Greg, the point of departure would be where Greg Boyd, for example, would say these laws are positively immoral, anti-gospel, etc., that's not the impression that I get reading Jesus, uh, that what we see is that these things are permitted, but they're not, it's not as though those are evil commands that God is giving. Uh, those are commands that are less than ideal, but God is working with people who are fallen. He, God assumes that people will sin, um, that, you know, but you, when you read, for example, that the law is in, in Romans chapter seven, that the law is good and spiritual uh, and so forth. Um, you know, that doesn't sound like what Greg Boyd is saying. Uh, that uh, And so, but, but as N.T. Wright says in a recent commentary on Galatians, he talks about how the law is like a booster rocket. It has a place in Israel's history. Uh, it is part of the covenant that God makes with Israel, uh, but it, it is only to get them to a certain point. And then once that job has been completed, once the Messiah comes, then there's a new way of ordering things for the, the for the people of God who are not to be understood in a of a nationalistic or you know national or ethnic or um, political uh, sort of way, but rather now as the interethnic people of God, uh, you know the church scattered throughout. Uh, the world and every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So, so yes, there is a, a certain accommodation that God steps in. He doesn't wait until everything is pristine and perfect that you've you've reached a utopia, and then God is finally going to do something. No, God works with a fallen, broken, 
people in the ancient Near East uh, steps into these uh, flawed social and political structures uh, and, and, and works to move his people in a redemptive direction. And one of the things that I point out is that God, in stepping in and working with his people, bringing them out of Egypt and so forth, but as you compare the ethos, the worldview mindset of you know, that is represented in the law of Moses compared to other law collections in the ancient Near East, we see that Israel's law understanding of you know in its vision is far more humanizing, far more uh, dignifying. Uh, far more, uh, as you, if you will, democratizing, that there is a fundamental equality that is being portrayed here in contrast to, say, the very hierarchical uh, uh, law codes or law collections in other ancient Near Eastern cultures where, you know, and, you know, I talk about how punishments depend upon where you are in your in society rather than in Israel, you know, you know, if your brother does this or that, there's that language of brotherhood and sisterhood and uh, and a fundamental equality that all are to uh, abide by the law that God has uh, has laid down. It's not uh, hierarchically structured that the, the the brunt of the punishments come to those who are lower uh, in the pecking order than those who are higher up and so forth. So so I unpack. I spend a you know couple of chapters uh, talking about those things in, in in greater depth. And and no wonder God says in the book of Deuteronomy that when the people see the Israelites actually living out this this wise law then they then the peoples will observe you know what a what a what a wise and understanding people this is so there is to be a marked difference here between israel and its uh and, and the you know and the surrounding nations and, and particularly being informed by the exodus that god has brought the israelites out of egypt and so how, you know to remember how they were treated in, in egypt and that this should inform them regarding how they should treat the most vulnerable in their society you know, the orphan, the the widow, the alien, etc. So, so those are a few things to keep in mind as we look at that question of uh, of accommodation. And if I may say this, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes this accommodation that Greg Boyd talks about—that what looks like you know good and God blessed in the Old Testament is actually seen as evil and deeply flawed, uh, deeply problematic, demonic, even. Uh, but as Greg Boyd looks at certain texts. It's interesting that, you know, as I would, I was read through his 1400-page book, uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, I kept on asking, well, what, what does Greg Boyd say about this text, or this text, or this text? And repeatedly, I mean, dozens of times, nope, 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 the texts are not mentioned by Greg Boyd. He doesn't interact with them, because a lot of these texts, when you, especially when you look at all of them, uh, yeah, you know, they would thoroughly undermine what Greg Boyd is is doing. So it's it's a it's so there is a, a kind of, he talks about this accommodation, but it's it, it's understanding that in in the in the broader setting of highly selective scripture proof texting, as it were, mm -hmm. and 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 so over and over again, I just found that Greg Boyd isn't dealing with a number of texts that would point for point undermine. And so uh, I, uh, in one of my chapters, I, I go through, I have a chart <laughs> where, I, where I talk about what Greg Boyd says about the actual God, uh, as opposed to the textual God, and how, you know, he pits them against each other. And what I do is I look at other texts that Greg Boyd doesn't mention. Uh, and I say, in a third column, I said, actually, in all of these cases, 
these are portrayed as identical. And so I've gotten like, I don't know, maybe 12, 14, 15 uh, examples where what Greg Boyd is saying just doesn't work out with the yeah. text. Yeah. And I think another thing that, you know, you, you have to keep in mind about accommodation, and I'm, I'm not saying specifically any of our critics are doing this, but something that is very tempting you know, to do in your own mind is to think, well, I don't like it, so it must be a divine accommodation. Yes. <laughs> um, and, it, and it was actually um, the person who alerted me to that um, through his work was actually one of our critics from Finn, uh, Kenton Sparks, uh, who was mm. warning about that, you know. Um, yeah, interesting. He, yeah. But um, so uh, an, another, you know, concept, you know, that you've already alluded to is the the idea of the the textual God. That's another um, concept that these critics from within would often employ. And if I can just um, be so brave as to quote your book here, um, you say, um, so according to our critics from within, the 415 mentions of thus says the Lord often don't come from the actual God, as you might think, but come from just the textual God. Who or what is this textual God? This is the literary depiction of God by a fallen, violence-prone, culturally conditioned, ancient Near Eastern, biblical narrator or prophet. That is, the textual God is just a fictitious and flawed representation. Um, so, uh, of course, needless to say, that's um, you, of course, don't have many good things to say about that idea. Um, but um, I'm curious to know, you know, um, if we just go away from the moral issue for a second, I mean, would you be happy to say that there is such a thing as a as a textual God in general? Because thinking off the top of my head, we could think of like Genesis 6, where it says, I think, uh, God looked at the wickedness of humankind and it regretted him that he had made man. Mm -hmm. And then I think it says later on in the story, um, something along the lines of, and he smelt the burnt offering and it smelled pleasant to him or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like, some people would say, you know, oh, well, this isn't actually God. This is more of a, a narrative device. Mm -hmm. um, so would this, if if we were to, if we were to agree with that, would that mean that we, be, we believe in a textual God, we just don't apply it to violent portraits? Or what do you think? Right. Well, I, I think these are more secondary uh, issues that are that I think whether you make this division like uh, Greg Boyd uh, does between the textual and the actual God, or or people you know like me who you know I, I would say yeah this is this is part of the the genres that we need to deal with, and I think as you're dealing with genres or types of literature within Scripture, uh, you make certain accommodations, and and part of that accommodation comes with understanding what a genre is. That the genre is a type of assumed code of understanding between the author and the reader. That when I'm writing in this particular genre or literary type, you'll understand it as such. So for example, if I'm reading Revelation and I don't understand apocalyptic uh, and that this is the genre, uh, then I will perhaps liter you know, literalize uh, images that were intended to be symbolic and in fact, you kind of invert principles of interpretation when you're dealing with apocalyptic because 
virtually everything <laughs> uh, is symbolic, and you assume that something is symbolic unless you have strong reasons for taking it in a more literal way. Uh, and the same thing would go with, you know, like, you know, poetry, or when I say, once upon a time, well, your mind automatically goes not to, oh, I'm going to, this is going to be a, a, a history lecture here. <laughs> uh, you think in terms of, you know, fairy tales, and uh, you understand it in that, in that sort of a setting. So when it comes to things like, uh, you know, the the image of God uh, being pleased, uh, you know, with the the fragrance of the burnt offering, uh, or the uh, you know, or or when it comes to uh, to to God, you know, again imagery used of God's physical features like uh, the you know the the wings of God underneath His wings, uh, you know, we can take refuge and so forth. That uh, these are ways of speaking, and that we can appreciate the way in which it's being expressed sometimes it's part of a dial dialogical understanding where it looks like oh god doesn't know the future he seems to seems to be surprised what i'd say here is we well <clears throat> we compare scripture with scripture <clears throat> excuse me and therefore we recognize that some of these things need to be understood in the broader canonical understanding uh rather than reading them in a more <clears throat> wooden sort of a way. So there is uh, some sort of accommodation here. We can talk about the textual God if you'd like. Uh, so yeah, we can we can parse that out. But what I'm concerned about is that these uh, that it's much more egregious than than literary genres and 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 and, and dialogical way, ways of speaking that that show God to be kind of a conversation partner, like a human being and so on, uh, that there's more going on uh, in these sorts of settings and where you're pitting the textual God, where it says, this is what the Lord says. And then uh, that we we come to find out, thanks to Greg Boyd and others, know that that couldn't have been what God says. It must be something else. Say so, well, this is pretty big stuff here, and if you're going to ascribe demonic activity to uh, to that narrator, to that uh, to that prophet, um, there's some you know, that's that's a serious crack in you know in the foundations, and so I I think that's dangerous a dangerous place to go. Sure, and something I'd I'd like to explore a little bit is that like some have gone as far as to label these critics from within as uh, Marcionites. Um, Whereas others um, think this is uncharitable, and I, I would too. I don't. I, I think that's quite an uncharitable charitable position to take um, personally. But you know, where do you land on this this point of contention? And for anyone who doesn't know, Marcion was, of course, the the heretic who thought that there was a big bad God in the Old Testament and the the good lovely God in, in the New Testament, and that they were literally two separate deities. But um, right, yeah. Where, where do you land on this on this point? Yeah. Well, I, I, I do think, um, if, well, I mean, Greg Boyd calls himself a practical Marcionite, so he's at least willing to uh, to <laughs> say that. And, and also, uh, Tremper Longman, a noted Old Testament scholar, does see them as practical Marcionites. Uh, so he does use that uh, that terminology. Uh, but, but I think also we need to be careful to, as you said, uh, we're not talking about, um, you know, the rejection, for example, on, on Greg Boyd's part of, of scripture, uh, he sees these scripture texts as inspired, but again, misrepresenting who the, the actual God is. And I'd say, well, that could be a problem. Uh, but but I, what I try to do is say uh, that there, there are certain tendencies 
uh, the neo-Marcionite tendencies. And I'd say, well, just take a look yourself and evaluate and, and, and let me know what you think, uh, that uh, you, you have this very rigid dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament, or you know, if you want, if you will, the, the, the textual God and the actual God, and what is typically ascribed to the actual God is rejected as demonic, I'd say, well, there's, there's a problem there. And also, when it comes to the you know, you know, the whole question of uh, what, of course, you know, we're not, when people say, well, those are two separate gods, one is, you know, and, and Marcion took these as two gods, one a bad one, one a good one. For for Greg Boyd, it would be just, it's actually a, te a, a text, a text, the textual god is merely a fictitious representation, not that there is an, you know, an actual textual god or something like that. So, so we can, we can, uh, we can reject uh, that kind of a an association. We can also reject a kind of uh, anti-Semitism that perhaps is, or anti-Judaism uh, that Marcion uh, seemed to to harbor. Uh, and so I'm not ascribing. We wouldn't want to ascribe any of that to Greg Boyd or uh, Eric Seifert and so forth. So so I, I guess you'd have to kind of look at. What exactly do you have? And kind of take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Well, when you're making these sorts of charges, uh, well, let's unpack that particular issue or that particular issue. Take it on a case-by-case -case basis. And and rather than just kind of using a label, uh, let's tackle them step-by-step. Uh, -step. One problem, and, and I think that Greg Boyd uh, can feed into this kind of a uh, Marcionite portrayal when he ascribes to, when he says that Jesus repudiates the law of Moses, when he is rejecting it, say in Matthew chapter 5, well, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, which is different from what he says in Matthew 4 at the temptation, where he's responding, quoting from the law, uh, telling Satan, uh, it is written, it is written, it is written. So that's different from, you know, you've heard it said, uh, you, know, you know, what Jesus is doing is he is addressing misrepresentations of the law of Moses, that the law of Moses justifies, uh, say, you know, hating your enemies, or the law of Moses justifies, uh, you know, taking these, uh, you know, these casuistic oaths that you, if you swear by this, uh, by the, by the, by the, gold of the temple, then it's binding. But if you swear by the temple itself, it's not binding. And basically, you take oaths to get out from actually telling the truth at all. So Jesus is responding to that sort of thing. So it's not as though oath-taking is repudiated by Jesus. Uh, in fact, there are oaths all over the New Testament. God himself swears you know, by his own name because he can't swear by anything greater. Uh, that uh, Paul says, God is my witness. I am not lying. Well, that's an oath. He is he is he is taking on oaths, and so there are oaths all over the place, and so so it's so there's not this repudiation that Greg Boyd is insisting that's taking place, and so when so what Greg Boyd is actually doing is is feeding into that chasm creation, not just the textual God, but the actual God and the actual God, but actually having Jesus repudiate Moses rather than a false uh, and flawed interpretation. 
of Moses. That's really what's going on. So, so there are some of those problems that we could perhaps unpack and, um, and again, being careful about uh, the label of heresy. Uh, but I do think that there are some problematic and mischievous tendencies that come with uh, that, that kind of approach to the Old Testament. Perhaps, you know, we could spend some time now on a couple of specific texts um, that critics both from outside and inside the faith point to in order to show that God, you know, God's behaving badly here mm-hmm. or whatever. And of course, that's, uh, you, you have a lot of case studies of, of this in the in the book. Um, yeah. So let's see, the first one we might look at is the story of the binding of Isaac. Um, I don't think you spend as, as much time in this book as you do in their uh, previous book, is, is God a Moral Monster? But, um, you know, um, we've already discussed this a bit, but um, I'm assuming the audience will know. This is, of course, a story where Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son on the mountain of God. Um, and, of course, the question is, well, how do you morally make sense of that? Of course, Isaac is is spared in the end, and God prevents um abraham from carrying out the command but you know he still he still commanded it um so um you you certainly believe that issuing this command is um is is within god's prerogative so um how 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 would you morally make sense of of a a passage like this right well it's important that when we make moral decisions, we take the relevant facts into account. And the facts that play into this command are much more robust, much more, there, there's a, a historical narrative here that must be understood Rather than assuming that, oh, what if God told me to do that in a dream uh, that I'm, I'm, you know, I had last night? What if, what if He says, take your your son, and uh, and and offer him up? Well, this is a far different scenario. For one thing, as I said before, God had had, God had been interacting with Abraham for decades. <laughs> God had been interacting with him and promised that He would through not just um, you know, uh, a woman uh, like Hagar, but through Sarah herself, have a promised child, a miracle child, who would be the one through whom the nations of the earth would be blessed. So there is this promise of a miracle, this promise of blessing. And God has also given him another son, Ishmael. And so in chapter 21, of Genesis, there is a kind of a test uh, before the big test, and that is his his son Ishmael. God says, you know, because there, of the tension created in the household because of Hagar and Ishmael, that uh, he says, send s- send Hagar and Ishmael away. Uh, because I will make of him a great nation. So there's this promise that even though you're sending them away, they're not going to perish. I'm going to take care of them. They will be okay. So uh, so send them away, and I'll take care of the rest. So God is reassuring Abraham that it's going to be okay, that they're not going to their death. Chapter 22, the narrative begins the same way, getting up early in the morning, uh, etc., uh, getting everything ready for, uh, for departure. This time it's with Isaac, and you have the command that God gives to to Abraham to take his one and only son and to be 
to offer him up. And, and so it goes from there. But keep in mind that this is the promised child. This is the miracle child. There's a promise that God, through that child, whom God is commanded to be sacrificed, <laughs> that this child is going to be the source of blessing to the nations. So Abraham, when he is about to go to Mount Moriah, he says to his servants, we will go and worship and we will return. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he's confident that God is going to work it out and that Isaac will accompany him and will indeed fulfill that promise that God has made that through Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So in this, we have a number of other moral facts rather than just some somebody's impression that God spoke to him in a dream last night saying, kill your son. We have a history here, a narrative that makes sense of that command and that puts it into a proper context. So, so if we're talking about just saying, oh, that's just like any other command to, to kill your son. Somebody perceiving that God is telling me, you know, kill, kill your son. Far, far different. And if we don't take that historical narrative into account, we're going to misread this and go off on all sorts of different tangents. Yeah, well, what prevents me from doing that to my son today? Those are the sorts of questions that often come up. And I'm saying, no, you're missing the point. This is a unique uh, set of circumstances that has it that provides a richer moral context that in a sense takes the sting out of or the bite out of uh, that command. I mean, it's difficult. We're not denying that. But we see that God is going to resolve it. And so we're just trusting that the Lord is going to work it out because he's promised this. And so we're going to we're going to we're going to work in accordance with that. Mm -hmm. And the way you put it in the book, I think the way you summarize it, which I quite like is, however, a good wise God may make rare highly specified authorized exceptions to our moral intuitions for morally justifiable reasons. And of course, that's, of course, what a historical narrative is, highly specified, rare, authorized exceptions, you know, so I appreciate that. And another way that kind of those objections from our critics from within and without are sometimes put are like, you know, well, if God could command child sacrifice in, in one instance, this means that he could make it morally normative, and so do you think that this narrative approach to the problem kind of just uh, takes this thing out of that objection as well? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, people uh, like Randall Rouser and others will will make that sort of a, a point um, that, well, why not just carry that over, uh, find all sorts of parallels and then say, oh, we can do that today. Uh, like with the Canaanites, for example. Uh, yeah. Well, the 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 point here is that there is indeed this historical narrative to what God is doing, and we're dealing with when God is saying to drive out the Canaanites. We're talking about a particular piece of land at a particular time, uh, you know, related to Israel's history, God's directive, God's promise to give this land to the Israelites, but also simultaneous with that, bringing judgment upon the Canaanites through the command to drive them out. And so this, uh, that historical narrative, uh, the fact that this is reinforced, this, these commands are reinforced by God's signs and wonders that he performs that validate the claims that, say, Moses is making, that Joshua is making, uh, that adds credibility to the commands as being for this particular time. Uh, and so when someone says, well, God told me to, to do this, well, I'd, I'd like to know your qualifications. Uh, are you, a, are you, a, you know, a, a person of good moral character? 
that you see this as not the norm, but actually the exception to it? Or is this just an anything goes kind of morality? Uh, also, uh, what about your prophetic credentials? No, not just character, but also your prophetic credentials. Uh, you know, what, you know, how, how, how good are you on this prophecy thing? Are you accurate? Are you, uh, are you, uh, are you telling us things that are actually, that are going to come true, that you are predicting these things with, with, with accuracy, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, and so we can go on you know, to, to talk about that. And so, yes, under normal circumstances, we say, don't do this or don't undertake those things unless there's going to be good, uh, in the case of you know, the biblical authors, good revelatory uh, support, uh, signs and wonders that support, and also seeing that this is the exception rather than the rule. And that's these are all important factors that we need to bring into the equation. Uh, and so once you see these his, the historical factors, the you know the the fact that you've got prophets involved, signs and wonders involved, and so forth. This changes the cast of what is going on, and you can't simply say this is just like what God is doing with Abraham in, in Genesis twenty two. Uh, far far different, and so we need to be able to differentiate between those sorts of scenarios and not simply have oh I can do whatever I want because I I had a dream and God told me to do this. Hmm. So um, we'll um, move on maybe at this point to, to the other passage that I want us to look at. Um, we're getting towards the end of our time, but um, probably have a little bit of time to look at this. So this other passage that might be useful to look at is um, Exodus 9 and 14. And this is, of course, where God hardens Pharaoh's heart and in order that he will be glorified. And um, I remember one of the critics from without... Uh, who has some sympathies towards uh, Christianity and Judaism. Her name is Amy Jill Levine. Mm -hmm. um, she says, oh, well, God's just having an ego trip here. You know, he's just he's just doing this so that, you know, he can be shown to be the greatest, the most, the strongest, most masculine deity around sort of thing. But um, you devote a lot of time to this question in the book of like, what's going on? Why is God just hardening Pharaoh's heart? Um, so, so, you know, you, we don't, we don't have, you know, you don't have to read out the whole chapter, but, you know, how would you begin in, in addressing this passage that seems problematic to many? Well, it's, it's a, a good question. It's a very interesting question in light of the fact that the Israelites are in bondage to the Pharaoh uh, in Egypt. Uh, and this is the leading superpower of the day. Uh, so God is actually stepping in to bring freedom and release to the his covenant people uh, who, I mean, well, to be covenant people, but, you know, God has already made a promise to Abraham and so forth, but he's going to deliver them from this superpower, and he's challenging the superpower and the superpower's gods on their own turf in Egypt. And so God steps into a very, what should we say, uh, kind of a politically laden situation. We're dealing with earthly power, and so God steps in to contest that very earthly power that is the oppressor, that is the enslaver, and that God is going to show that he is greater, that he is the God who is to be feared above all gods. And so we read, you know, repeatedly, you know, so that they might know the Israelites and the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. And so as he goes about this, 
he is uh, also showing that in hardening Pharaoh's heart, and it's significant that you see this repeated over and over again to represent the picture that it's the Lord in, who is in charge, uh, that God is the one who is the sovereign ruler over the nations, over uh, over Egypt included. And so what do we mean then by God's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, let's keep in mind, first of all, that Pharaoh was a pretty nasty guy before, before God even begins to harden his heart. Uh, so before, <laughs> before Moses comes in to confront him, he's been making life miserable for the Israelites. So, and again, when he asks to, that they might be released, uh, he doubles the work for the Israelites and makes life uh, even more bitter for them. So, so first understand that when we're coming to Pharaoh, he's already very, you know, he's, he's evil, he's an oppressor, he's a tyrant. Uh, so when, when we see that God then further hardens Pharaoh's heart, keep in mind that Pharaoh's already hardened his own heart, that there is a hardening that takes place at two levels. First, and, and I think this is generally speaking, uh, that God uh, doesn't harden soft hearts, uh, or potentially soft hearts, he hardens those that have already become self-hardened through resistance to his grace, through his mess, to his messengers, uh, and, and, and his spirit's influence, and so forth. And that's why, for example, uh, Stephen says in Acts seven fifty one, uh, you're always, you know, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Uh, so there is this hardening, to, hardness to the the commands of God, to the uh, to to what God desires, and so forth. So God, uh, God shows forth his grace that's resisted uh, by hard-hearted humans. So God then says, okay, well, have it your way. I'm going to work with your own hard-heartedness. And of course, God doesn't have to do that. He can continue to, uh, to persist in his gracious influences uh, to work in people's lives. Uh, but he can also withdraw those. And that's where we see, you know, the, you know, I will harden whom I will harden. Um, you know, rather than persisting and showing that grace and showing mercy to whom I, I show mercy. But keep in mind that it's not just a kind of an, a, a capricious arbitrariness where I'll harden that person's heart, I'll harden that person's heart, I'll harden that person's heart. Uh, God will use hard people's hardened hearts, uh, self-hardened hearts, uh, to bring about his purposes. Sometimes he will use that or this or that person, other times not. But the point is that God is not God's purposes are not going to be obstructed simply because people attempt to stand in their way in God's way, uh, you know, and 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 resist, uh, like you know, think of the nations that are uh, you know in Psalm two, you know, the nations that are in upheaval, you know, that uh, uh, they're trying to say, you know, they resist the rule of God and break uh, break those chains asunder. And the you know the God who sits in the heavens laughs. You know he you know that this is just a it's 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 a joke to think that you can resist uh, God like that. So so that's really what where we what we have going on here. And so it's keep in mind the nastiness of Pharaoh that he's first hardened his own heart, uh, and then that secondary part comes in. And it's not as though it's a, a kind of an absolute hardening that Pharaoh could never repent. Uh, mm -hmm. This is for a particular slice of time, and you do see some weakening, some softening. Uh, pray for me, or okay, I'll let you go, and then he changes his mind and so forth. So it, it's not as though it's just an utter, absolute, uh, stiffened resolve. There's a kind of a caving due to the circumstances and, and uh, relenting, and then, nope, I take that back. And so that's the sort of thing that we see going on, uh, and that's also a factor to keep in mind. Sure. And, you know, we haven't had a lot of time to look at 
the the story of the Canaanites. But do you think you know the hardening of Pharaoh's heart properly understood would it does it help us to understand the hardening hardening of the Canaanites in Joshua eleven? Um, this is um, of course the story. Um, well, which king is it that that God? What's what's the the background? Just just to well, uh, of course this is this is yeah. you know the, the, the what's the backdrop to this is that it says that before it mentions that verse it says none of the Canaanite kings or none of the Canaanites sought to make peace with the Israelites. So you have all these Canaanite kings that are assembling you know, against uh, against the Israelites, rather than you know because they already knew that what god had done in egypt they already knew that god had brought them through the red sea they knew that god had brought the israelites uh, through you know across the jordan river on dry ground and so there's this great potential for abandoning their ways and and aligning themselves with god we we do see that in for example rahab chapter 2 and chapter 6 of joshua we also see in chapter 8 that there are some canaanites in in shechem who are present at this covenant renewal ceremony while Joshua is reading the law. These strangers that are there at the end of the chapter, these are Canaanites. These are not, you know, these are not Israelites. And they're aligning themselves with the one true God. And so there is this, you know, the Gibeonites, they recognize who God is, and through speech, you know, through uh, you know, specious means, uh, they they make an alliance with Israel. But you know, the, the the implication is that there could be, you could align yourself with the Israelites. You could recognize that this is the one true God and make peace with the Israelites. And so there are various commentators that recognize that this verse suggests that peace could have been made, but these nations refused, uh, you know, so they had resisted the grace of God, the, 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 the in a sense, the warning signs or the signs and wonders that had come that they already were aware of, and they resisted and hardened their hearts. And so God says, okay, you're going to do that. I'm going to harden your hearts in, re in reply, as it were, and uh, and I'm, I'm going to give the Israelites victory uh, over uh, over you. Uh, of course, it's something that was gradual. It takes time. Of course, Joshua's unique text, a war text, and we not not time enough to get into all of that but uh, but but again that's the sort of dynamic that's going on so yes there is indeed an intentional parallel here between pharaoh's self-hardened heart and uh, and god's sovereignty over this superpower and also god's sovereignty and you know over the canaanite uh, peoples uh, these nations these kings uh, that uh, if they're refusing to uh, to align themselves with the one true god uh, if they're hardening their own hearts then god says okay i'll i'll work with your hardening and i'll just uh, remove my gracious influences so that you'll fight and that my people will be victorious Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, th thanks for that. So that was that was very educational, and uh, you know, it's 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 been great to to hear all your perspectives here. It's been uh, very uh, uh, very theologically intense. All this um, information that I'm sure the audience will um, uh, go back and listen a few times maybe to this conversation. But if we can just turn pastoral here, just before we uh, close, um, you know, in conclusion, you know, how does having this God that we've been talking about, someone who sometimes does strange and, and frightening things as well as very gracious and very loving things. How does this God help us in our in our Christian walk, do you think? Well, I think it reminds us of the authority 
of God over our lives, that God is indeed the cosmic authority and that we should not take lightly that authority by playing games with God. You know, there, there's, you think of, you know, in Galatians 6, where it says, you know, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that will that person also reap. Uh, so, so God is not fooled by, well, I'm going to do things my way, uh, and we 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 abdicate or we 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 usurp the authority of God in our own lives, and we think, oh, God's going to let us get away with this. Uh, we don't have, you know, no, God is not mocked. Don't play games with God. And so, when you read. Jesus, there's a you know there's a great book uh, that uh, was written you know Tom Gilson who, who Gilson who writes a book uh, you know too too good to be false uh, writing about Jesus how his authority is so compelling and commanding that Jesus simply assumes that people are going to listen to him he assumes that people uh, are, are you know ought to obey him that he's he's just acting with this divine authority and expects people to listen to him. And if they don't, then there's there's a price to pay. So so when we look at a God who is, you know, God is revealed in Jesus, Jesus will do some things that are mysterious, baffling, unpredictable. And we would think that kind of a thing of a supreme cosmic authority, that his ways are not going to be our ways. And so we leave room for God to do things that may surprise us or throw us off balance that we think, oh, I've got, I, I understand this God. I know this God. And we, and, and it becomes utterly predictable uh, as we engage in uh, devotion. Uh, no, God will, will do these strange and frightening things. Uh, and, uh, and especially the frightening things, if we, uh, if we violate and and defy God's expectations of us, His commands of us, or think I get away with this stuff, and that's what the fool is in the in the book of uh, Psalms, you know, Psalm ten or Psalm uh, fourteen, and so forth. The fool who you know, is not a one who is an atheist, but says God's not going to hold me to account. We can get away with it. You know, does God really see this? Those are the sorts of things that we need to be very careful about, and and sometimes those. Those Old Testament passages that seem unsettling, that seem harsh, and and again, I'm not presuming that I've I've mastered everything and I can clear away all the difficulties, uh, but but the this God who is portrayed in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New, who's you know, turning over money changers' tables in the temple and driving them out uh, and so forth, not letting people come back in. There there is a uh, a severity, a, an unpredictability, a something frightening, uh, and so so it, it is a reminder that we ought, ought to walk humbly before God and and before others, of course, uh, and that we uh, let God be God, and to allow Him to do things that might throw us off balance, uh, but to recognize ultimately that He is good, but as uh, C.S. Lewis reminds us, and we've already discussed, that God is, you know, Jesus um, is not safe. And I think that's a, an appropriate balance to have. God is good, but he is not safe and uh, not predictable uh, in, in that sense where, you know, obviously his character is 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 stable uh, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But, uh, but God will do things in his own unique way. He will surprise us. He will shock us. And I think in the 
in the end, um, we'll be surprised by a lot of things that are revealed, uh, things about ourselves, things about who God is, about the unfolding of his purposes. And so, uh, you know, and some of that even plays into our understanding of the problem of evil, uh, that God will do some things that are indeed difficult to penetrate, difficult to understand. Um, God is going to make these things clear. And I, that's why I like, I like this hymn by uh, William uh, Cooper. Um, and he, you know, the, the hymn writer who, you know, in his hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Uh, he says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. That's great. That is, um, you know, I, I, I think that's almost at like a the perfect way to, to end a podcast. But I will just say that as well, just to riff off what you said, um, that, you know, this, this harshness of God is, you know, I think it's more, it's also more problematic for those of us who live in a Western context where the most benign like the most malevolent thing we experience every day is maybe someone calling us an idiot or whatever but for for countries for other countries where you know their day-to-day life is being you know uh bombed or being uh having to leave their place of residence because of evil people or Mm -hmm. um, people who have been trafficked or like whatever the the bad the bad case is this is actually this harshness of God is actually a, a source of comfort for them. As exactly. Well, it? Yes, indeed. And, you know, of course, in the, in the um, vindictive bully book, I do bring that out that, you know, we can often just read this through Western lenses and not realize just, you know, those imprecatory Psalms, which I talk about in this forthcoming book, those harsh Psalms, uh, those are used by people, uh, Christians in other parts of the world as, again, a great, as you said, a great source of comfort for, for God to bring judgment upon those who are going to be dehumanizing, who are going to be engaged in wicked activities, who are violent toward uh, toward believers, that if they don't repent, uh, then God bring judgment. And that's exactly what uh, we see in Revelation 6, you know, the, the martyred saints who are calling on God to, uh, you know, how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our blood that has been shed upon the earth and so forth. So that's uh, a very fitting part. It, it, the New Testament, the gospel does not remove those things that cry for judgment uh, for those who refuse to repent and who continue to bring great harm to others. So, so yeah, it's a good, I'm glad you kind of turned that uh, reminder into, uh, you know, that, that point into a reminder about what other people throughout the world face uh, in, in these non-Western settings. Mm -hmm. Okay. And those are all my questions. So it's, it's been great to have you on on the show, Paul, and uh, really appreciate all, all your insights for us today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure, Patrick, and uh, look forward to doing this again with you sometime.